SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, welcome to Night TV Radio. Bertrand Ngandamengaya. I'm Bertrand Ngandame. Coming up in your program this Monday, the 20th of November, we have a conversation with Arietta uh, Marie A.M., a global indigenous rights advocate and trailblazer for cultural heritage preservation, winner of a 2023 University of South Australia Distinguished Alumni Award. We also have some stories shared by NITV, including the story of Australia's first faculty dedicated to First Nations wisdom and a new book by an Indigenous primary school teacher honoured with the prestigious Literary Prize. On NITV Radio this Monday afternoon, also, all you need to know about the Kufia Australian politicians Mehrin Farouki and Lydia Thorpe have won the Kufia in Parliament, but what is it really and what does it symbolize? All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news, coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri Waiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Bulletin, Canadian and Australian First Nations organizations strike a historic deal on collaboration and solidarity. Prime Minister Antony Albanese criticized for not revealing Chinese naval incident before APEC summit. And Yemen's Houthi rebels sees what they say is an Israeli ship amid regional escalation fears. Indigenous-led organizations in Canada and Australia have made an historic agreement aimed at improving economic outcomes for First Nations peoples in the two countries. A memorandum of understanding has been signed between key Canadian First Nations financial institutions and Australian Indigenous-led organizations, including the Australian National University's First Nations portfolio and the National Native Title Council. The groups say they have a common history of discrimination and economic exclusion, and the agreement aims to confront and address those barriers. National Native Title Council Chief Executive Jamie Law says one example of a project the agreement could help is electricity sales from an Aboriginal-owned and operated solar farm in Victoria, which will help finance crucial services for the local community. We want financial and um, economic independence and self-determination within Australia. They're well advanced over here. Um, 
in Canada. So we're trying to learn of their experiences, some, bring some of our experiences to them and, you know, collaborate on creating a better future for our people. A bilingual story of healing and belonging has won a prestigious literary prize, literacy prize. Open Your Heart to Country by Indigenous primary school teacher Jasmine Semo has won the children's literacy, literature category at the Prime Minister Literacy Awards held in Canberra. The book was recognized for both its beautiful illustrations and moving story written in both English and the Darug language of the Sydney Basin. Miss Amo says it's important to promote Indigenous storytelling. So important for um, you know to hear our voices in our languages. You know, for, for a long time there, we weren't seeing any stories uh, written in Aboriginal languages, and they're becoming more and more common. And we want to see more all over Australia in everyone's languages. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese is facing criticism for not revealing details of an attack on Australian personnel by the Chinese Navy until after he met President Xi Jinping at the APEC summit. Former Prime Minister and current U.S. Ambassador Kevin Rudd has defended Mr. Albanese's conduct against criticism from the opposition and crossbenchers. He says Defence Minister Richard Miles had made Australia's objections absolutely clear to Chinese authorities. Mr. Rudd has told ABC Radio the nature of any conversations between the Prime Minister and world leaders is confidential, which he says is a long-standing practice of both Liberal and Labour governments. Independent Senator Jackie Lambie has told Sky News the incident which saw Australian Navy divers injured by sonar pulses should have been raised at the summit. You can't sit there and pretend you're going to be nice on trade while this is going on with our own Navy people um, that could have brought more harm to them and without raising this. This is just ridiculous. What what happened to the friendship and, and the trust that we were building and all the rest? Um, but more importantly, simple, come out this morning, come and answer some questions. Tell Australians what's going on. Keeping this in the dark is not helpful. Emergency legislation rushed through Parliament to apply more strict visa conditions on 93 people released from immigration detention could face a legal challenge. Constitutional expert George Williams says legislation passed last week requiring ankle monitors and imposing imprisonment for those in breach of tight reporting requirements may be outside the scope of the government's powers. The federal government has again defended its decision not to legislate sooner before a high court decision, which led to the release of the migrants, some of whom have been convicted of serious crimes including rape and murder. National Senator Barnaby Joyce has told Channel 7 the legislation, which passed with bipartisan support after amendments by the opposition, should have been made before the High Court's decision. I mean, all those amendments that you just talked about are Peter Dutton's amendments. What on earth is going on? They've got six months warning about this. Six months ago, they started saying, well, mate, you're on shaky ground. Well, the shaky ground just opened up. A new cyber health check program is being set up for small businesses, which allows them to undertake a free assessment of their security measures. The Albanese government has announced it will spend $7.2 million to offer the voluntary program as part of its Australian cyber security strategy for 2023 to 2030.
This comes after concerns about national cyber security following an Optus outage which saw millions of small businesses and customers unable to access the internet and make calls and a cyber attack which saw Australia's largest ports operator shut down its operations. Minister for Small Business Julie Collins says the program is about helping businesses who understand the risk to their data but do not know how to keep it safe. There's around 94,000 cyber attacks a year and the average cost for small businesses is around $46,000 for each attack. This is about making small businesses more resilient. Mm -hmm. It's about also protecting consumers whose data they hold. Yemen's Houthi rebels say they have seized an Israeli ship in the southern Red Sea, raising fears regional tensions over the Israel-Hamas war are playing out on a new front. The office of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says an unnamed ship, since identified, identified as the Galaxy leader, a vehicle carrier affiliated with an Israeli billionaire, had been seized, but insists it has no Israeli connections or Israeli crew on board. A U.S. defense official has confirmed the seizure, which comes after U.S. warships twice intercepted missiles or drones believed to be targeting Israeli or American vessels and says the situation is being closely monitored. Houthi military spokesman Yahya Saria says the group will continue to target Israeli ships until the end of Israel's campaigns in occupied Palestinian territories. Our armed forces confirm the continuation of carrying out military operations against the Israeli enemy until the aggression on the Gaza Strip stops and the ongoing heinous crimes against our Palestinian brothers in Gaza and the West Bank cease. The Iran-backed group says it has taken the crew as hostages after taking the ship to a Yemeni port. Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital has been described by the World Health Organization as a death zone after WHO-led UN team says they saw a mass graveyard at the hospital's entrance. The World Health Organization has repeated its calls for a ceasefire and says options for medical care in Gaza are dwindling. The WHO visit was coordinated with the Israeli military as uh, fighting continues close by to the hospital. Minister of Health for the Palestinian Authority, Mai Al-Qaila, says there are not enough beds for the wounded in Gaza. Of the 35 hospitals that stopped in the Gaza Strip, 26 stopped completely and went out of service and were unable to provide their services to the wounded either because they were directly targeted by the occupation or because they ran out of fuel and lost electricity. As the conflict enters week 7, authorities in the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip have raised their death toll to 12,300, including 5,000 children. Israel has tentatively agreed to a five-day pause on fighting in Gaza, but Prime Minister Netanyahu says nothing is confirmed. Argentinian voters have elected libertarian outsider Javier Milei as their new president in a tight runoff amid electorate anger at triple-digit inflation and rising poverty. Centre-left candidate and economy minister Sergio Massa has considered the election after a candidacy hampered by the country's worst economic crisis in two decades while he has been in the role. Back home, 
one in three Australians have had their passwords stolen, but almost as many are still using the same details across multiple accounts. Research by Google Australia and YouGov has surveyed more than 1,500 Australian adults about their online security and found 36% experienced a password hack and 34% were using the same or similar passwords across multiple accounts. This comes after the Australian Signals directly. Directorate revealed cybercrime reports had soared by 23% over the past year, with the organization now fielding an online crime report every six minutes on average. And to sport, the Pacific Games in the Solomon Islands have begun showcasing the best athletes from across the Pacific Islands as they compete in 24 sports. Ryan Tiak is competing in archery and will lead the Australian team as flag bearer at the Games as one of dozens of Australian athletes taking part. In total, more than 5,000 competitors and officials from 24 Pacific nations will come together in the capital Honiara over the next fortnight. Mr. Tiak has told SBS the Games are an exciting opportunity to qualify for the Paris Olympic Games. So Australia's competing for the first time in the Pacific Games because this is our opportunity to get quota spots for Paris 24 and hopefully on Wednesday we'll be able to achieve that. We've got to be able to win the whole event and then we'll be able to qualify one man and one woman. It it feels amazing to be the flag bearer, just to to know that in the AOC that every sport matters is kind of what that message says to me and and it doesn't matter what your background or what experience you have that everyone can can recognise achievement no matter what sport or walk of life you come from. And having a look at the weather around the country, Brougham sunny 35, Perth sunny 33, Adelaide partly cloudy 25, Melbourne cloudy 22, Hobart partly cloudy 20, Albury Wodonga mostly cloudy 29, Canberra rain developing 26, Wollongong partly cloudy 24, Sydney becoming cloudy 26, Newcastle Newcastle, possible shower at the top of 26. Brisbane, rain 25. Townsville, partly cloudy 31. Cairns, possible late shower 32. Alice Springs, sunny 31. Darwin, mostly sunny 35. And the Torres Strait Islands, a sunny day ahead at the top of 33 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. TV radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. or anytime online. I'm Bertrand Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, the Kulin Nation. Coming up next in your program, we have some stories shared by NITV, including Australia's first faculty dedicated to First Nations, First Nations wisdom. We also have a story about a new bilingual book by an Indigenous primary school teacher that has been honoured with the Prime Minister's Literacy Award. On NITV Radio this Monday afternoon, we also look at uh, the Kufia. What is uh, the Kufia? has been won by Australian politician Marin Faruqi and Lydia Thorpe in Parliament. But what is it really and what does it symbolise? But first, conversation with a global indigenous rights advocate, winner of a prestigious award. Marietta Marie A.M., 2023 University of South Australia Distinguished Alumni Award winner, joined us on NITV Radio. 
after winning this accolade. The accolade recognized her several decades' leadership and trailblazing work on cultural heritage preservation. In a past episode of on NITV Radio, we explored Harrieta Marie's work in many areas, but today we learn more about her latest endeavors. Together with managing her consultancy business, Arietta Marie is currently leading an Australian Research Council project at the University of Queensland. She says, through this project, we are developing a database to collect and safeguard the knowledge of North Queen, northern Queensland Aboriginal peoples on indigenous plants and their properties, including for food, agriculture or medicine. We know that, you know, while we have the land and we have the knowledge base on a lot of these resources, um, how do we ensure that we can make use of this to be able to build our own local economy, ensure jobs in our regions and have all of this pretty much controlled and managed by the Indigenous people themselves. Many Indigenous people have now taken on uh, wild harvesting, so they are... uh, harvesting some of the products such as the um, kakadu plum uh, is being harvested not just throughout NP but also throughout the Kimberley region. But again, these are small uh, groups that have taken it on. It allows local groups in that area to hold a job uh, for a certain period. But in order to process it further they have to have a a third party and, and therefore to either freeze it or um, dry it and then again these can be made into chutney and jams or tea etc. I guess for that to work uh, properly you would need to pull in uh, to build capacity and pull in uh, more resources including uh, financial resources. There's a need for more finance to be given to Indigenous local communities who want to use their knowledge base and understanding of the genetic resources within their regions uh, to be able to create businesses. But, you know, what's happening now, despite all this, despite only being um, the, the, uh, the controlling 22% of the world's land, uh, Indigenous territories uh, protect 80% of the planet's biodiversity. So these lands are um, also estimated to, uh, to contain 36% of the world's remaining intact forests. And that was a data by the World Bank some time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so uh, while we can advocate for biodiversity, for biodiversity's sake, it really will take the extinct, um, extinction to really set straight what is happening and the fact that we need to use this. Because many of us, what's happening is at the moment, we are seeing a rapid loss of species. We are seeing this today, which is estimated by experts to be between 1,000 and 10,000 times higher than the natural extinction rate. So if we lose our, our natural resources, we are going to suffer because we rely on these natural resources, not just for food and um, agriculture, but also for our pharmaceutical drugs. Yeah. You know, because much of these drugs are discovered uh, from wild species. It always has been, and it'll continue to be one of the most critical for us on Earth to, to continue this, particularly towards our health care and disease prevention and wellness.
So if we lose our natural resources, we lose access to building our businesses. Yeah. And and not just indigenous businesses, I'm talking non indigenous businesses. And can you elaborate a bit more on how this affects uh, not only indigenous businesses but also non indigenous businesses and uh, our economy overall? So our economy and 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 driving our business forward depends very much on a lot of nature. And these are biological resources, they're the resources they are extracting from the land. Uh, there's development, so you see more uh, these mansion block buildings going up, you know. Um, and and what's happening is habitats are actually disappearing because of the uh, ploughing in terms of agriculture or the concrete that are being slapped on the land. So we continue to impoverish nature and deprive ourselves of any potential medicine or better agricultural products because we're not use, we're not actually using them in a way that is sustainable. And that's in terms of non-Indigenous, but for us as Indigenous people, much of these resources are part of who we are. They're also a, how our identity. They're part of who we are. Or as I am as a Yidinji woman, it's my identity as a Yidinji woman. But if my sight and the river system are no longer there, if they've been built upon and crossed over or if the, we lose our biological diversity, which gives us our food and our medicine, we lose who we are. You know, it, We are losing part of us that goes with it. We may never get that back unless we get the resources to be able to extract what we can and also uh, build on what we know and, and put it somehow, uh, safeguard it in the space. And a database is so important. But a database is, use, is useless if we cannot do something with those products and practice using it on a daily or monthly basis. Yeah, the database would just be collecting dust on shelves, uh, whereas yeah. uh, you need practical uses of that database. And uh, this research is uh, ongoing uh, with the University of Queensland. How far are you in uh, the project? Uh, is it about to end? How far are you? We've only just started in June um, of this year. We still have a year and a half to go before we complete that. But again, we will only be touching the surface in terms of what we probably, what we will achieve with that. Uh, it's certainly a good project. I, what we're exploring are the kind of database system that's out there. Uh, what we want to do then is work with uh, the local communities, particularly in the North Queensland area, to, um, to basically find out uh, whether they find them, what, 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 um, Type of database system do they want? Yeah. So they have they then make the decision uh, on the kind of database system that once needs to be set up within their region. So having to give a number of options for for them to look at would basically allow them to make a much better informed decision on what could work for them, and that is so important uh, to have them make that decision. At the same time. We want the database system to not just sit idle, but 
that the government can also have access to it in order to, if we can protect our knowledge base, that somehow when, if a patent is uh, asked for in a, on a particular plant, uh, and if we are using that plant for a particular medicinal property within that or just as part of our local food source that we would have, we want to be able to, uh, again, um, you know, it's up to us in, in, in what we do with it and how we, how we share that with, yeah. with others. And yeah. that knowledge base is important. And it also will allow, hopefully, using the existing intellectual property laws to be able to protect that. And I think that's another big um, challenge for us uh, at the moment is how do we change, how do we engage with government, particularly in the patents area and the plant breeders' rights area? We have not really investigated that channel of protection or allowing Indigenous rights to be enforced within those two systems of laws. And this is something that we need to, uh, again, acknowledge and we need to then work out how do we do, how do we use those laws, existing laws, or do we need to uh, have another sui generis law that will allow the protection of the uses of genetic resources. Wow, you say there's no protection and yet the products are being used. How widely are they being used? Many of these products have already been used in the medicinal property area, and we have never been able to actually get any kind of benefit sharing arrangements um, in, in a formal way. This is something that governments need to work with us on. And at the moment, there's a lot of focus on, on management of these lands and these resources, but there's no focus on how do, how do we involve and engage Indigenous people themselves in this country to be able to use the resources which they have used for for centuries and um, for not just for food and agriculture, but for also the medicinal property I mean, yeah, and yeah, therefore yeah. work out some kind of arrangement on, on the benefit sharing side of things. And these are some of the most uh, lucrative businesses and I'd say that uh, actually more than 60 or 70% of... Uh, active principles in medicine is a plant derived or synthesized but it's always plant derived so and the benefits go to the pharmaceutical and these big conglomerates nothing to the uh, traditional owners or people on the land who nurture and uh, protect those species absolutely yeah absolutely and this isn't just a national issue here in Australia it's a global issue right now but in some countries they have recognise um, local communities and Indigenous people's um, ownership over some of these materials. So it's about how do we do that here? Yeah. Uh, because if we, don't, if we don't protect these resources, we lose every element of what our cultural traditions are. At the same time, Western country loses out because they can no longer access the medicinal property within these plant species or within the species out in the reef. If we lose all of this, uh, we lose our right to survive um, as a nation. Or this country will never... We will never be the same around the world. We, we will never be living in, in the, and enjoying what we enjoy today. Um, 
So there's a need to really look at protection, um, biodiversity. There's a need to engage more with um, First Nation people in this country. And um, there certainly needs to be a committee set up to really explore some kind of arrangement with government in how we can effectively use both international instruments and the legal system in this country to ensure that we are reaping the benefit, um, the monetary benefit from the uses of these resources that uh, it still belongs to us. But under law, uh, in particularly the state of Queensland, most of these genetic resources belong to the, the Crown. And um, for us to access it, we've got to go to a permit system if we want to use it for any kind of monetary purposes. Well, we can only use um, the traditional properties or the, the plants um, and the fruit that we get for our consumption, but we can't use it for monetary purposes unless we go through the process of working with the national parks and getting a permit, permit to, to do that. And again, there's a lot of money involved in, in going through how do we develop that into some kind of monetary uh, form that we will benefit from yeah. and you know so yeah so there's, there's a, still a lot of work to do yeah. um, it's something that we can't do on our own we do need others to support us on this and we need the government to clearly see uh, that th- we can move forward and build our local economy and help build the national economy in this country as we have done for for many years um, since colonisation. And that was uh, Arietta Marie A.M., winner of the University of uh, South Australia Distinguished Alumni Award. And this is only part of our conversation. If you want to learn more about uh, Arietta Marie's work and achievements, uh, you can find uh, the full conversation on our website. Time for a break, and when we come back, we have some stories brought to us by NITV. <music> Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Now the first story shared uh, with us uh, by NITV's NARA program. Residents of a remote community in Western Australia's goldfields hold grave fears for the future of their home. Located next to one of the world's biggest gold mines at Kalgoorlie, the community says poor living conditions are driving people away. Karen Cox reports. In the shadow of the super pit, one of the world's largest open-cut gold mines, lies the Ningamaya village. Founded in 1983, more than 200 people used to live here, but many have left due to poor housing and maintenance. Most of the houses here got um, no water, and power just goes out, and they, nobody comes out to check nothing, and this. There's a big whole building here that I'm sitting next to. The power went out there for for a good month. Ms Stokes says only about 50 people are left in the community. They want people to move out. We're just going to hopefully stay as long as we can, you know, try and put up a fight. Because this, at the end of the day, is our traditional um, land. This is our land, Aboriginal land. She says rubbish disposal services and street lights no longer operate. 
The WA government says it's working hard to improve housing at Ningamaya, but like many regional areas, the ability to deliver quality and timely services is impacted by retention and attraction of skilled workers, particularly for trades. Law firm Slater and Gordon says it launched a statewide investigation into conditions in remote communities ahead of a possible class action against the state government. These are issues that simply wouldn't be acceptable in the cities and they wouldn't be acceptable in white Australia and yet for some reason in remote Aboriginal communities it's it's the norm and it's accepted Um, and that's been going on for too long. Traditional owners fear if they leave Ningamaya, a significant cultural area could come under threat by the mine. This area used to be a traditional um, ceremony and ground and... um, um, people used to come and meet here from all different groups and um, that's what's going to happen if we might, most probably going to be one of those people where the super pit will take over as some ceremony grand. A community fighting for its future. Karen Cox, NITV News. And the Queensland University of Technology has announced plans to open Australia's first faculty dedicated to First Nations wisdom. The Faculty of Indigenous Knowledges and Culture will operate as a standalone unit alongside others such as engineering and law and will deliver academic programs and conduct research. NITV's Tanisha Williams has more. Soon, the grounds of QUT will be a place where Indigenous knowledge and culture is not only celebrated, but given an intellectual space that supports black excellence and innovation. The idea for us now is to focus on what Indigenous knowledges means to all knowledge in the university and what difference it can make to the way people at university look at different issues and problems and perspectives. The faculty will be the first of its kind in the country, launching next year and enrolling students in programs from 2025. It's a faculty, it's a family, but it's also um, the the training ground for an intellectual army um, that is committed to the survival of our people. The new faculty will provide opportunities for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to immerse themselves in our culture. The central goal, though, to double current QUT numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students over the next five years. Currently, there are less than a 1,000. I'm hoping it'll bring uh, uh, the best people, um, both academics and students, and and create an environment where uh, we really are able to uh, educate, celebrate black excellence. Over the next 12 months, Courses under the faculty will be developed in partnership with community organisations in the areas of arts, health, education, justice, business, media and sport. This is the exciting thing. When you get mobbed together and you give access to education on our terms, you can't even begin to imagine the transformative possibilities. And that's the exciting thing for me to be a part of um, is to see what our people can do with the tools of these institutions for the betterment of our mob. Shifting the landscape of higher education with endless possibilities in sight. Tanisha Williams, NITV News.
And now imagine writing a book and having it published in just one week. Well, that's the challenge being taken up by a group of Dewey Island girls who have traveled from the Northern Territory to Sydney for an intensive five-day workshop. NITV's Sophie Bennett has the details. (laughs) Busy brainstorming at a Sydney publishing house, these Tiwi College students from Melville Island are a long way from home. They're taking part in the Indigenous Literacy Foundation's Create Initiative. In just five days, they'll write, illustrate and publish a book. The book is going great. Uh, We got told from the designer saying that she loves the book. How's it going now? This is Bella's second trip as a staff member. After participating in the program three times as a student, she's helping guide the younger girls. It was tough when I first came. I I went to Melbourne for my first one. Yeah, I was pretty nervous because I was the youngest in the group. Aged between 15 and 17, for many it's their first time travelling out of their community. We always see children that start the week off too shy to speak or they can't look you in the eye and then as you build that relationship they become really strong in self-confidence. The program also aims to use creativity as a way to tackle lower literacy rates. Sometimes literacy is measured on your ability to get thoughts out of your head and, and written down on the page but there's roadblocks to that. To help break those down, young mob are encouraged to use English or Tiwi to tell their stories. They're also given the chance to illustrate. This is a crab, um, turtle, snake, long bum, stingray, mud mussel, crocodile. At the end of the week, the girls will walk away with a printed copy of the finished book. Back home, they hope their story will inspire other kids to get excited about reading too. Their parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles, they're just so thrilled and everybody wants a copy of the book. They're giving out autographs. You know, they become real little rock stars overnight. After nearly a decade of success, there are hopes to expand the program. Helping more young mob to share their stories. Sophie Bennett, NITV News. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. Welcome back. Now, since the latest flare-up of violence between Israel and Palestinians, the black and white scarf known as the kufia has been highly visible at pro-Palestinian protests. Australian politicians Mehreen Farouki and Lydia Thorpe have worn it in Parliament and it's even been draped over a Benjamin Franklin statue in Washington. But what is a kufia? Youssef Saudi explains. Black and white scarves have been highly visible at pro-Palestine rallies in Australia and around the world, especially in the past month. They come in different colours and embroideries, like red and white, or just white. They can be worn around the neck, over the head, or wrapped around a face. The scarves are known to Palestinian as the kafeya, and since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, they have become for many a symbol for resistance and independence. Many protesters worldwide wear it as an act of solidarity. Dr. Anas Iktait is an Australian National University lecturer at the Centre for Arab and Islamic Studies. He says the kafeya has a deep connection to Palestinian identity that dates back centuries. Obviously, the kafeya is one of the most recognisable symbols of the Palestinians. 
um, both in terms of heritage and culture and also in terms of plight, political plight for and, and right of self-determination and anti-colonial Palestinian movements and anti-occupation movements and so on. So it's both. It has this political symbol and as well as the cultural and heritage um, significance uh, as well. Where does the name Kefaya come from? While the garment is most readily identified with Palestinians, its origins lie further east in what is known today as Iraq. The word Kefaya itself is connected to the Iraqi city of Kufa, south of Baghdad along the Euphrates River. It's worn by many across the Arab world and known by many names such as the Hatta and the Levant dialect and Ghatra and the Gulf region. Dr. Iqtait explains that the garment was initially worn mostly by farmers. During the Ottoman period and perhaps even prior to the Ottoman period, the kufiya also resembles much of the attire that is worn um, across the Arabian uh, Peninsula and across the Arab world. And it is at the most basic level, obviously, its purpose is to protect from, uh, from sun, also from excessive winds, and to provide protection for farmers as they were basically working the fields. It was during the Arab revolt against British colonial rule in 1936 that it started to gain broader popularity. The kufiya itself was standardized, if you will, across both the urban as well as the farmer uh, communities in Palestine as a symbol of unity and a political statement against the British uh, colonization of Palestine. Then came the Nakba, which means catastrophe in Arabic, the mass displacement and dispossession of Palestinians during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. The State of Israel was established after World War II, and by the 1960s the Palestinian resistance movement had strengthened. Wearing the kafaya for the Palestinian people became a symbol of resistance, aided by then-Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat, who helped popularise the kafaya to a global audience. Yasser Arafat was a joint Nobel Peace Prize winner who led the Palestine Liberation Organization to a peace agreement with the Israeli government in 1994. From 1996 until he died in 2006, he was the president of the Palestinian Authority. Throughout his time as a Palestinian leader, he would often wear the kafaya, with some saying he shaped the front of it in a triangular fashion to represent the map of Palestine. Academics say the kafaya's embroidery and designs have symbolic meaning to Palestinian culture. The black leaves around its frame represent the leaves of the olive tree to represent resilience, strength and courage. The fishing net pattern symbolises the Mediterranean and the Palestinians whose livelihoods depend on fishing. The broad line depicts the trade routes that pass through the region and symbolise a long history of trade, travel and cultural exchange. Despite the political connotations of wearing the garment during a time of war, Dr. Tate says the kafaya's rich history shouldn't be forgotten. It is a political symbol. It does signify solidarity with Palestinians. It does symbolize the plight of the Palestinians. Um, but at the same time, it also goes beyond that. It's a cultural and, and um, it's a cultural symbol that Palestinians have been um, wearing and, and using for a very, very long time. Yusuf Saudi. SBS News. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Shade Away. That's a beautiful song by Electric Fields. Well, with this song, we come to the end of uh, today's program. 
NITV Radio will be back on uh, Wednesday and Friday with more stories from right across the country. I'm Bertrand Tungandami, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.